as we turn together to the book of Philippians. I'm going to finish off the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians this morning. Our text is verse 27 through verse 30. I'd like to begin the reading of God's Word, however, at verse 21. If you would please give attention to the reading of the very Word of God. It is sufficient. It is inerrant. It is authoritative. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 21. For to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have given to us Your means of grace, specifically Your Word. Lord, we ask this morning that You would illumine Your Word in our hearts, that by Your Holy Spirit You would convict us of sin, You would encourage us on to love and good deeds, that You would give us a greater understanding of Your Word, accompanied by a greater obedience. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. There is a double blessing to preaching, to preaching through books of the Bible, God's Word to God's people. The first is the blessing that comes to the minister as he spends time in his study, being beat about his study by the Word of God, shown his own sins, encouraged in his own walk with Jesus. But the second blessing is to bring that very Word of God to God's people, to point them on the path that the Lord Jesus Christ would have them to go. And this, I trust you have seen, is especially true for this book of Philippians. I've said to you before, it is not a coincidence that I chose to preach through the book of Philippians as we started our next phase of ministry, our new life in the building. It's because Philippians is full of encouragement. It's full of calls to joy. It's full of great statements about the truth of the gospel. But Philippians is also full of passages like we see this morning. Passages that point us direct us, 
and even to some extent shove us along the path that we are to go. Point out to us how the Christian life is to be lived, the consequences of the gospel, not only in each of our lives, but in our life and our life together as the corporate people of God. And so this morning we are going to look at what it means to live a life that is truly worthy, worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing that I would like us to see is that call to a worthy life. Paul issues to the Philippians and to you and to me a call to a worthy life. He then begins to describe what this life looks like. He lays out the characteristics of a worthy life. He doesn't just call us to generalities. He lays out what this life will look like, its characteristics. And then finally, to establish us, to strengthen us, he lays out what the certainty of a worthy life looks like. So we are called to this worthy life. We see its characteristics and we become certain of it because of the word of God. So let us then begin by looking at verse 27 and see Paul's call to a worthy life. It begins with a challenge from Paul. Paul looks at the Philippians, figuratively speaking, and he says, you know, I only have one thing here, really, to tell you. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I don't want you to miss little words in the Bible. Paul uses this word only as a means of emphasis. It is to draw our attention to what is coming because Paul has just been talking about some very weighty things, hasn't he? We've been looking at what it means to be with Christ, to live for Christ, to have Christ live in us, to be united, to not know what's better, to be around God's people or to be with Jesus Christ. To see the gospel go forward, even out of bad motives. To hear about Paul's difficulties and pains. And you can imagine the Philippians are on the edge of their seat. This is like near the end of a movie. They're waiting to see what's going to happen. Tell us, Paul, what happens next in your life? And Paul says, no, wait a minute. Let's not look at me. Only this. Only this one thing. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And you see... This is typical of Paul's exhortations in the Scriptures. Paul is telling us that it is the type of life that we live that is important, not the fact of life itself. You see, he can say to live is Christ, but he needs to describe what that looks like. He wants us to know what it means to truly live for Christ, to have Christ at work in our life, and that will look a certain way. And the way it will look is, first of all, with nothing else distracting. There is nothing else that points us one way or the other. It is only being worthy of the gospel. As I looked at this first sentence, I couldn't help but think of a friend of mine from seminary. He was in, in seminary studying to be a chaplain, a former ranger, a former Green Beret. You know the drill. You could live for three weeks off bugs. could kill you with a paperclip. I mean, this was a guy that had seen some serious things. And he had a way of focusing conversations in seminary. He would look right at you and he would say, you know what? Here's the bottom line. And he would do it with a southern twang. Here's the bottom line. Let me tell you. And it would usually be some kind of pithy one or two sentence saying. 
That's what Paul's saying here to you today. The bottom line of your life is to live a life worthy of the gospel. That's not to the exclusion of being a father or a husband or a mother or a wife or a child or a grandchild. No, all of those things come together in the bottom line. Living a life that is worthy of the gospel. And the interesting thing is that Paul can say that this bottom line is the same whether he is there or whether he is absent. He only needs to give one set of instructions. And it is to live a life worthy of the gospel. Now, the word here that is used, the verb, there's one Greek verb that means let your manner of life be. And it's a very interesting word. It is a word that is related to our English word, politics. Wait a minute. Is Paul going to lie to us right now? No. Politics, the art of governing, comes from a Greek word for city, the governing of a city. And there's a verb that comes with city. It's called living like a citizen of a city. Being a citizen. Conducting your life in accordance with the life of the group, the city itself. And you see, that's really what Paul is saying. He's really saying, live like a citizen. He's jumping the gun a bit here on what he will say in chapter 3, that famous verse telling us where our citizenship is. You see, Paul is saying, you are to live like a citizen of the kingdom of God. That is what your manner of life should be like. You see, as we live as Christians here in Katy, Texas, in Houston, Texas, we should look like aliens. Our speech should be different. Our customs should be different. We are living as citizens of another country. We are traveling as aliens and pilgrims. I saw this all season long as I coached my boys' baseball team. One of their friends on the team... His family is from Norway. And he would, oftentimes, he would play catcher for me. And I would give him advice on how to set up and how not to get hurt. And over my shoulder would come his father speaking in rapid Norwegian. At which point I would say, exactly. I couldn't understand a word that was being said. I was constantly being reminded that they were here as resident aliens. Their culture was different. Their language was different. You see that perhaps at your workplace, in your neighborhoods. This is a very cosmopolitan city. But it's more cosmopolitan that you know. Because each one of the people of God is a citizen of another kingdom. You are citizens together with people from Africa and Asia and Europe and Central America as part of the kingdom of God. And so Paul says you should be focused on this and you should live like you are a part of the kingdom of God. And this type of life will be worthy. It will be worthy first of the gospel, Paul says. Our lives as Christians must be consistent with the gospel. There is no greater damage to the gospel of Jesus Christ than to have someone observe someone who professes and their life does not line up with that profession. You know what this is like. You see it in mundane fashions. You talk to someone and they tell you how big a baseball fan they are. They just, they just love baseball. 
and they love it when their team scores all kinds of points. And you say to yourself, points? There's no points in baseball. There's runs. There's no points. Oh, yes, I love it. I love the points. And then when they get the touchdown, touchdown. You don't have any touchdowns in baseball. You have home runs. And immediately you say to yourself, this person knows nothing about baseball. And if we're honest with ourselves, the second statement we say is, I'm not going to listen to a word they have to say about sports or baseball. They don't know what they're doing. You see, that's the challenge that faces the church of God in the world today. We can shout the Bible from the treetops. But if we do not live the life, people ignore what we're saying. We must live lives that are worthy of the gospel. We must live lives that are not only worthy of the gospel, but that are worthy of Jesus Christ himself. You see, it is Jesus' gospel. It is his kingdom. That is the place in which we live and have our being and have our citizenship. And you see, this would not be lost on the Philippians. You recall that I told you that Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a Rome in miniature. The citizens of Philippi were considered citizens of Rome. But it didn't end there. Unlike most of Greece in Philippi, they spoke Latin, not Greek. In Philippi, they wore togas, not Greek clothing. In Philippi, they ate Roman food, not Greek. You see, they wanted to be Roman. They were Rome in miniature. That's what the church of Jesus Christ is. It's heaven in the sense of the kingdom of God in miniature. It's the place where God's people come together no matter what their age, no matter what their culture, no matter what their ethnicity, and they gather together around the word of God. And they gather together to worship and adore the living God himself. You see, the church is a place where God reigns, where God's kingdom holds sway. This is the kind of life that Paul calls us. He challenges us to live. But he also encourages us along the way. Do you notice that? Paul says, your life, the life that you would live worthy of the kingdom of God, it's not dependent on me. He says, listen, whether I come and see you face to face, or whether I'm absent and I just have to hear about it, either way, the call for you is to live a life worthy of the gospel. This should be very practical for each and every one of you. I would encourage you, and I would expect that you would live lives of service, of prayer, and of reading the Word of God, in spite of the fact that during the summer, John and I will go on vacation. That your spiritual life is not dependent on us, but rather it is something that is a part of your very being. It is something that is a part of your daily life. You see, Paul says, I'm not important. My presence or absence isn't important. It is the gospel that is important. And you can live a life that is worthy of the gospel. You see, even Paul's language says this. He says, I want you to live this life with the result that, so that whether I'm here or whether I'm gone, I may hear that you are standing firm. You see, Paul says, by way of encouragement, that the life that you live goes beyond you. Our Christian life doesn't stop with us. It has a report. It has a hearing. 
It goes out and about in the world. Others, including Paul, may hear. Paul has been laying out the three main tasks of the Christian with the gospel. The first is to defend the gospel. Do you remember that? We are ready for the defense of the gospel, Paul says. The second is to proclaim the gospel, that Christ would be preached. But the third here is to adorn the gospel. Beloved, if we look into the depths of our own hearts, if we think about our lives, we will realize, especially in Reformed circles, we have the defense of the gospel down. We do well at proclaiming the gospel. Not just ministers, not just elders, but most members can give you a five-point lecture on the importance of preaching. The question then comes to us, though. Do we adorn the gospel as we ought to? That's the challenge for us. Others have great difficulty defending the gospel. They don't know what they believe. We have a confession. We study the scriptures to be approved. Others have difficulty proclaiming the gospel. They don't know the importance of preaching. That's not our situation. The challenge for us in Christ church, in the PCA, in the Reformed world, is to adorn the gospel with the beauty of a life lived for Christ. Not as separate from defending the gospel or proclaiming it, but to give those tasks power, meaning, reality. Paul calls us then to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. But Paul will not let us grow or live in fuzzy land. No. He will lay out for us then the characteristics of this worthy life. The first thing is, is that we are to stand firm. Paul says, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Steadfast for the gospel. What does that mean? The first and I think most obvious conclusion is that we are to be firm in the truth of the gospel. We are to understand what the Bible teaches. We are to understand man's dilemma. That man is caught, lost, dead in sin. That the only hope for a sinner is found in the sovereign work of God in the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to stand firm upon that truth. And no matter what the world says, we say with Martin Luther, here I stand. I can do no other. We don't apologize for the word of God. We don't say, well, you know, the Bible does have these sort of interesting things to say about the way a marriage should be. Kind of outdated. No, we stand firm upon the word of God. We don't say, you know, the Bible does have certain things to say about forgiveness, but that's difficult to do. So, no, we stand firm upon the word of God. But we also stand firm in our commitment to each other. It's not just the word of God that brings us together. It is each other. And so we stand united. Paul's turn of phrase here is a military phrase. He says, stand at your post and be alert. And if you've ever been in the military, you know that you cannot fall asleep on watch duty or very bad things happen. And in order to help be awake during watch duty, you have others around you to help. We are to stand as God's army firmly together, shoulder to shoulder, to face the onslaughts that will come. 
We stand steadfast because we are in one spirit, Paul says. And I believe we have good warrant to take this here as the spirit of God. Because you see, it is the work of the spirit of God that brings the church together. Some of you grew up in Texas. Others of you grew up in the south. Some of you grew up up north, perhaps even overseas. Some of you have lived a long time. Some of you not so long. Some of you have a ranch house, others two or three stories. But the one thing that every single person, man, woman, and child in the church of Jesus Christ has in common is the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in their life. It is the work of the Spirit of God that binds us as a people. Not the clothes we wear, not the books we read, not the music we like. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And you see, Paul directs the Philippians and you and me to the blessings and graces and the gifts of the Holy Spirit away from ourselves that we would look to our unity in Christ because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And this unity plays itself out in the fact that we are to be of one mind. You see, Paul says we are to stand firm in one spirit with one mind. That means putting aside all differences. It means acting like citizens with a common goal and a common country. It's like perhaps you've seen in old World War II movies. You see the squad training together in basic training. And there's fighting and nitpicking and they make fun of people that come from different states. But when they get on the battlefield... They are all united in one purpose and one mind. And nobody thinks about or cares about who's from the South or who's from Montana or who's from California or somebody grew up on a farm or somebody else grew up in a city. No, no. They are all of one mind. They put aside all differences. You see, Paul is placing this emphasis right in front of us. He says, in one spirit, with one mind. You see, the mind here is also the word for soul. See, being of one mind means considering the same things valuable. Giving your life to the same things. And that requires humility. It's one of the most difficult things in the church. You may think, well, one of the hardest things in the church is, how do we get the church to grow? Or how do we get good preaching? Or how do we get good fellowship or how do we have good sunday school no the most challenging thing for the church of jesus christ is for each person to put aside their own preferences for the common goal to put another in front of them that they might be united with one mind one spirit and one goal now this does not mean jettisoning the truth because we are in one spirit with one truth with one gospel, but it does mean putting aside the things that we legitimately might desire and like for the sake of the brother or sister beside us. It's having one goal. And you see, this leads to a life that is characterized by one of striving hard, of making effort. You see, being of one mind, standing firm, requires effort. It requires hard work. Paul says we are to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
The word here for striving is the same word that we get for athlete. It's just a verb. And you know how athletes get ready and compete. They train. They work hard. They lift weights. They do exercise. They get mentally prepared. It is hard work. Maybe not hard enough work to get paid $25 million a year, but it is hard work. That's what Paul says here. He says you are to work hard and to strive together because it's not just striving as individuals in the church. You see, Paul takes the preposition that means with and he sticks it on this verb. So you don't just strive. You're not just an athlete. You are striving together. You see, church, beloved, is a team sport. You cannot be an individual in church. You've heard the saying, there's no I in team. There's no I in church either. Being a part of the people of God means striving together for one common goal. You may have seen an illustration of this in the past week or so. Perhaps if you're a fan of the National Basketball Association, you watch the Cleveland Cavaliers lose to the Orlando Magic. And everyone, from all the announcers to the Magic's coach to every Magic player, would say up and down that the best player in the league is not on our team. It's LeBron James. Nobody can stop him. He's the best. And yet at the same time, after the Cavaliers won Game 5, every announcer said, there's no way the Cavs can win because they're not playing as a team. They're expecting one guy to do everything. They're standing around doing nothing. And sure enough... They lost game six. You see, that's just a game. But that can happen in the Christian life too. It can happen in our churches as we stand around and wait for others to do what needs to be done. Refuse to lend a helping hand because we don't feel like it or because we don't feel called to it or perhaps we're afraid we don't have the gifts for it. And what Paul says is, you need to work hard. Put your shoulder to the grindstone. Help your brother and sister go together for that common goal. Because you see, we don't just strive, beat the air, to use a biblical phrase. This effort is with a goal in mind. Because it is a striving for the faith. We are to strive for the faith of the gospel. Now, I don't normally give you grammatical lessons from Greek. But I'm going to give you one here because I think it's helpful. The word faith here is in a construction called the dative of advantage. You don't even need to know what a dative is. What you need to know is, is that the striving is for the advantage of the faith of the gospel. Not for the church, not for Paul, not for you, not for me. The hard work together is for the goal of the advancement of the faith of the gospel. Now you may say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean for the faith so that people will believe? Or does that mean the faith like the faith once delivered, the body of truth of the gospel? Yes, it is both. Because if we have the deposit of faith of the gospel, it requires us to take it out to the world. The gospel must grow. It is a part of its nature. And you see, we strive that we might know the word better, that we might take the word out to a world that is lost. You cannot advance as a church, as a society, 
or even as a family, unless you have a goal in mind. If we come to the place, God forbid, where these four walls and the piano and the pulpit and the table are the end-all, be-all, we will wither and die. This happens to churches. They lose their goal. They lose their purpose. And they become inwardly focused. Does that mean we shouldn't take care of these walls and like this piano and polish the pulpit and the table? No. But what it means is these things have a purpose for the goal of seeing the faith of the gospel spread in our community outside the church and in families inside the church. This is the purpose. This is the goal. And you see, this kind of life leaves us unafraid. Because you see, unity leads to courage. We don't need to whistle in the dark when we have brothers and sisters around us. There is indeed strength in numbers. And we need this because there are real opponents out there. You see, Paul says, Do not be frightened. Do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. You see, Paul says, It's not whether we will experience this kind of opposition but it is how we respond to opposition that matters. Because opposition will come. It's come to the people of God throughout the ages. This word for opponents is the same Greek word that is used in Exodus 23, when God says, I will protect you from your opponents, from the armies that will come in and attack, from those people that Joshua has to lace up his sword and go out and defeat. It's also the same word that's used in Esther, You may recall as we looked at that Sunday evenings, how the people of God had real opponents building real gallows with real plots to attack them. Paul says you don't have any need to be frightened because of a life that is lived in sight of the gospel. He says don't be terrified. Now this kind of frightening, being frightened, is not the kind of startled or gnawing fear. This word is only used here in the Bible, and it is most often used in Greek literature to describe a panic of horses. You know what I mean, right? Everyone here has seen at least one Western in which the good guys who are outnumbered do a distraction by opening up the corral and firing off guns and the horses go off everywhere, right? We've all seen that. And the horses are going everywhere and no one can stop them. No one can re-corral them. It's chaos. And Paul says, you don't need to be chaotic. You don't need to be running hither and yon. You don't need to be afraid and terrified and outside of yourself. And he's very emphatic about it. He says, you don't need to be afraid in nothing. He uses a double negative to say that there is no way, no how, that you should be frightened. We're not to be terrified because of a life that is lived in sight of God, worthy of the gospel. So where does this leave us then? We hear this call to a a life that is worthy. We have it laid out in front of us. And perhaps you, like me, sit and look and say, that's a tall order. It's hard to not be afraid. It's hard to put myself second all the time. It's hard to pull together. It's hard to do these things. Paul says... I know it. And let me tell you how you can be certain of a worthy life. He says, rather than being bothered by opponents, you can be encouraged. 
Because you can know your relationship with God as a result of the opposition that comes to you. You see, those who give you opposition, they know that to them this is a sign of destruction. What is a sign of destruction? The life that you live worthy of the gospel in front of them. They may not say it, but as they oppose you and they see a life that is worthy lived out, they see you turning the other cheek. They see you being selfless. They see you helping others. They see you rejoicing in adversity. It takes away the excuses that they have. Well, you know, he just goes to church because he can get business. He can get more insurance sales. Oh, she just goes to church because she's lonely and it helps to pick her up. No, not at all. They look and they see the real life that is behind the words. And the greatest weapon that the world has is taken out of its hands. Do you know what the greatest weapon the world has is? It's not liberalism. It's not secularism. It's a lack of integrity in the church. What do I mean by that? Because you see, the world's argument goes something like this. You tell me, I have to believe in the gospel to be changed. You tell me you believe in the gospel. You're not changed. Therefore, the gospel doesn't work. It's some kind of fly-by-night product that's sold at 2 a.m. on television. Because it obviously doesn't work. You tell me the gospel brings forgiveness. You don't seem to be forgiving. You tell me the gospel brings hope. You don't seem to have hope. So why should I believe? But you see, when we live lives that are backed up, that are backing up the word of God, then that excuse is ripped out of the hands of the faithless. They have to come to grips with their own life. They have to come to grips with their own reality. And you see, they are faced then with knowing that a life that opposes God leads to destruction. And this word for destruction means exactly what you think it means. It means eternal destruction. It's the same word that is used in that famous verse, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Exact same word. You see, it's a challenge to the world that is lost to see a life lived for God, the gospel. Perhaps you have not come to a place this morning where you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior. Perhaps you have not come to grips with the call of the gospel. Today, Paul takes that excuse away from you. It is a command of the living God himself that you believe upon his son and that you find forgiveness for your sins in his atoning death. This is the call of the gospel. This is real life. And then you may live lives that are worthy Worthy of the gospel, of the God who created you. This is a sure sign of destruction for those who do not believe, but it is a sign of salvation for those who do. You see, opposition shows us that we belong to Jesus Christ. All that Paul has been talking about is in the this. This is a clear sign. It's the life that is worthy. It's the standing firm. It's the not being afraid. It's the being unified. All of that encourages us that we are indeed Jesus's. A life lived before God is a wonderful boon to assurance. And we understand the purpose of God 
in this life. We see that faith is a gift that comes from Him. But we also see something that we're not quite so quick to jump on the bandwagon for. The gift of faith, everyone whips out Ephesians 2 out of their Bible and they're happy for it. We don't exactly like the gift of suffering. But it also shows us that God has a purpose in our lives. That God is working through us. That life is bigger than us. God gives us this gift of suffering. I want you to notice something else here as we conclude. Paul gives us a certainty about our life and our participation in the gospel. That our life is worthy. He gives it to us in the sign from God. He gives it to us in seeing the purpose of God. But he does more than just recite truths to us. He points out common experience. He says, you know, we are in the battle together. He says, I am engaged in the same conflict. The same struggles that you have, I have. The same struggles we are in together. We need to be reminded that our sufferings, while they may be unique to us, not everyone has a heart attack. Not everyone battles with diabetes. Not everyone has a difficult marriage. Suffering itself is not unique to us. Our brothers and sisters around us are suffering. And we are in this battle together. And so we can learn from the past as we look back and see the struggles that we have gone through or that others have gone through and God has delivered them from. And we can be encouraged by the present. Do you see what Paul says here? It's so contrary to modern Christianity. You see, the 21st century Christian preacher would be very concerned that his people see him as being confident and everything is right with his life and everything is perfect and his bank account is great and his marriage is wonderful and he has no problems. Be like me and have no problems. But you see, that's not what Paul does. What Paul says is, you know, I have the same struggles right now that you do. I'm not perfect. I haven't arrived yet. That's why I want to be with Christ. We could take encouragement from that. Do you? Do you look around you and where you see people who are imperfect, do you poke at their faults? Do you find yourself disgusted at their challenges? Or do you look at, are you encouraged and saying, here's a fellow soldier in the battle to get through life? That's the call of the gospel. To be united around a common faith, in a common purpose, to walk worthy of the calling that God has placed on us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this call of the gospel that you have given to us. We pray, O Lord, that you would remind us that we are in a battle, but that we are not alone. And so, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us for the coming day. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now hear the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. 
the Lord lift up his countenance on you and grant you peace, now and forever. Amen.